Okay, so um, in Alpha this week, the uh, last Alpha talk was, why did Jesus have to die? And so this is sort of one of the big questions uh, of life and answered from a Christian perspective. It's sort of answering the questions of guilt and forgiveness and the presence of evil in the world. And like the Christians answer it by God had to come and die in order to rework the fabric, almost sort of unlock this new level or new plan for humanity, and he did that through the cross and through the death and, res- and resurrection of Jesus, but you couldn't have had that unlocking happen without Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sacrificing himself for the world. Now, when you sit at Alpha and you talk to people who come from all backgrounds, it's like really a tough question. We might think we have sort of the, the sort of Bible answers or the things we've learned in Christianity, like, oh, of course he had to die. But like when you really think about it, like, why is that the way? You know, like, why did it have to be like that? And so we wrestled with that question at all of our tables. It was great. Um, but, but it's still tough to know. Like, why, why couldn't he have just saved himself, taken over right then? Like, why did he have to go through with the dying, right? So it's one of the really challenging questions of Christianity. But actually for me, as I've wrestled through that, I've come to see why that is. Um, but the question that's actually harder for me to see, or every time I hear it, I'm baffled by it, and you might be like this too, because it's almost like we don't talk about it very much. In fact, at Sedaris, after Easter Sunday, we've every year for the last few years done what we call Ascension Sunday because the story doesn't end at Jesus' death, resurrection, and then it's over. It ends at his ascension. So for me, actually, what's become the harder question, I'm just bringing this up because maybe you are like me, it's why did he have to leave? Like after he conquered death, atoned for our sin on the cross, was buried in the grave, and on the third day rose, why did he have to leave? That doesn't make any sense to me. Why didn't he just stay at that point so that we could see him and learn directly from him? Why did he have to go? Anybody else struggle with that? Am I the only one? Like, okay, thank you. (laughs) Why did he have to leave? Why is the ascension necessary? Well, Jesus is going to actually tell us that. He's actually going to tell his disciples that before he dies, before he rises, and before he ascends into heaven. Uh, He's going to tell us why he has to do that. It's actually for our good. Because as much as the disciples got to experience the power of God's presence with them in the person of Jesus, Jesus is going to say, I need to go in order that I can send another helper, another advocate. And if I don't, then it's just me. And there's some limit. So we're going to look at that today. So let's read the passage. If, you rem- if you've been with us, we've been walking through Jesus' farewell speech to his disciples that's happening in the upper room. Uh, same time he initiates communion in the Lord's Supper, but John doesn't record that for us because he's like, you know about that from the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to give you some other details that those guys didn't give you, and one of the details he gives you is this amazing farewell discourse from Jesus. So let's read verses 15 to 31 and then see what we can glean from it. Ready? Okay, so 
15 says, if you love me, this is Jesus speaking, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. Another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. Remember, Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is important. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him. You do know him. What do you mean, how do we know him? Stay tuned. You do know him, but you, because he remains with you and will be in you. Okay? So that language in the Greek, he remains with you and is in you, those aren't two separate states, that's one state. So he's beside you and in you, meaning he's all around you. That will be their experience, Jesus says. He goes on, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will, remain, uh, will reveal myself to him. That is the one who keeps my commands. Okay, so verse 22. Judas, and John tells us not that Judas, not Judas Iscariot. So this is one of my favorite things about the Bible. If these guys were making it up, they would have just changed people's names. Because like, there's this other Judas, but remember, not the Judas that is about to rat Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Different Judas, <laughs> John's telling us. Like, I know it's confusing, but this is just who Jesus chose. <laughs> he chose multiple Judases to be amongst the 12. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus doesn't really answer his question. But he does answer. Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. Confused yet? It's a lot of interplay. What's going on here? Verse 25. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, same word used before, the counselor, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have told you. So one of the reasons we can trust that these are the words of Jesus, is because Jesus says, I'm sending to you the Holy Spirit to help you remember the things that I said. So Jesus said that's how it would work. So we can have some trust in the scriptures. If, if the other promises of Jesus hold true, including that he died and he rose again, because he said that would happen. Well, maybe we can trust him. Also that he said, when I go, I'll send you 
something else, the Spirit. That seems to happen. So the Spirit, Jesus promises, will remind you of everything, even my words. Okay, verse 27. So peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. I love that line. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but Jesus says, I've come to give you peace, but not the same kind of peace that the world gives you. Anybody seen the uh, Netflix documentary about the We Are the World song? We are the world. We are the children. Ty, it's a little audition here. <laughs> Anyhow, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie came together. They brought like 40 of the greatest pop stars together. Pretty amazing. It's a really interesting documentary. You should watch it. Um, Not that kind of peace, <laughs> okay? Jesus says, yeah, there's, I mean, when 40 pop stars get together, they can bring some peace. And, and good things happen. But Jesus says, my peace is even beyond that. Even beyond that. So I love that. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. You have heard me tell you, I am going away and I am coming to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice that I am going to the Father. Because the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. So Jesus is telling them, part of the reason I'm telling you these things is so it's easier after they happen for you to trust everything that I've said. I will not talk with you much longer because the ruler of this world is coming. So Jesus is again predicting that bad men with bad intentions led by Satan himself, God's adversary, Satan, who doesn't want God's glory to permeate the world, bad men with bad motives led by bad spirit will come and arrest him as he said, and he will die. That's coming soon, he's saying. That's what he means here, by the ruler of the world. He's coming. Now, he has no power over me, <laughs> Jesus says, so don't worry. I go willingly. He's going to think he's winning. He's going to think he's won. He's going to think he has victory when I hang upon a cross and die. What he doesn't know is that's my plan to save the world. I love that. He has no power. He has no control. He's got nothing on me, is what some of your translations might say. He's got nothing on me. On the contrary, so that the world may know that I love the Father... I do as the Father commanded me. It's the Father that tells me to go give my life as a ransom for the sin of the world. So I do what the Father commands me to do. And then he says, get up. Let's leave this place. So what's Jesus talking about here? Again, just like last week, we need to understand the larger context to these statements because we could just read this, look at verse 15 again. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Whew. Okay. That feels heavy, feels hard, feels difficult. What is he talking about? Now the larger context is going to help us here understand he's been talking about something in particular. And it's going to give us a particular lens with which to understand this command. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. What commands are we talking about? Now, 
jump back up to verse 12, which we talked about last week, and let's see what these words flow out of, right? So they flow out of verses 12 to 14, where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we talked about that last week, so I won't go into it. He's talking about very specifically the works of God. And he says something just mind-bending. You'll do greater works than me. And you're saying, greater? Greater than you? What do you mean greater than you? How could that be? I mean, think about the things Jesus has done. Think about the things that we've read about. Greater than that? Greater than raising Lazarus from the dead? Greater than walking on water? Greater than feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish? What do you mean greater? But that's the context in which Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my command to do greater works than me. So what are the greater things? How is it possible? What could he be referring to? How much greater... Now, when we understand the full arc of what Jesus came to do, as I mentioned before, when we understand that Jesus is the second person of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three in one, there's one God existing eternally in three persons, complex, you don't have to understand that, nobody fully understands, God reveals that to us, but that the second person, God the Son, came to earth and took on the full form of humanity, clothed himself fully in humanity. God, Jesus was fully God, but when he put on full humanity, he became and took on the weaknesses of humanity, which means he was tempted in every way. He could have sinned, but didn't, because he leaned upon the power of God the Father to fight back against that temptation and lived a sinless life as fully man, the kind of sinless life that we never can attain, no matter how hard we try, we all fall short of that perfect life, but Jesus came and fulfilled that perfect life in perfect obedience to God the Father and therefore became the spotless lamb who was and is slain for our transgression and our imperfection and our mistakes and our willful sin, all of it. He paid for that because he was the perfect, the perfect man and God, and he died on the cross for the sins of humanity. That's the gospel. But the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel tells us that after his death on the cross, on the third day, after being buried and laying in the tomb, on the third day, God the Father raised God the Son in bodily form back to life to prove that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient and full, and accounted for, and that life was possible even after death and sin. And so Jesus is brought back to life. Sin and death are conquered. Jesus now walks, talks, teaches for 40 days in his physical body with the disciples and explains things to them that he pointed to, but now after the resurrection they can more fully grasp oh, that's what you meant, and that's why that happened, and he unpacks the Old Testament, and he gives them new revelation, and he encourages the disciples. But then after 40 days, he says to these 
remaining disciples, I need to go. Because, did you see that in the text? Look at verse 12. And greater things than these you will do because I am going to the Father. No, no, no. Not because I'm going to the Father, greater things you'll have to do. No, flip it. You'll do greater things because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus is telling them right here, there's things I'm commanding you to do, and you'll be able to do them because I'm going to the Father. That's the context. So what do I think greater means? I mean, I think Jesus is saying, if I leave, because I leave, I'll be able to be with you in a new way, and you'll be able to do the greater works that God has planned for you and for my kingdom. Because no longer will my presence be isolated to my physical presence here on earth. But now, because I go to heaven and send the Spirit, I can be a million or even a billion places at once because I'm in you and with you. That's what he's going to say next. See that? So I think that's, oh, that's why he had to leave. So what does the greater mean here? I think the greater or primarily what Jesus has in mind is not that you will do even more miraculous work, qualitatively speaking. It's not like, well, Jesus walked on a lake and you'll walk on an ocean or something. It's not greater in that sense. I think what he means is greater is an expression of scale and reach. Scale and reach. So does this bug anybody else? You don't even know what I'm going to say, but let me tell you what I'm just going to say. Does this bug anybody else? Now, you almost have to be from Seattle to be bugged by this. Like, I meet somebody, and, uh, you know, I'm traveling, uh, and they'll say, oh, I'm also from Seattle. I'm like, oh, great, 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 great. Yeah, where do you live in Seattle? Now, I live over by Wilden Park Zoo. That's Seattle. They'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I live out in North Bend. North Bend? You're calling that Seattle? That is not Seattle. I mean, sometimes it's even like, yeah, Wenatchee. No, you do not live in Seattle if you're from Wenatchee, okay? Or North Bend, or South Bend, or East Bend, or West Bend. You gotta be in the city. You gotta be smelling the Puget Sound. You gotta be paying the taxes. I mean, you're not from Seattle, people. Stop it with this. But I understand. I get it. Nobody's heard of the North Bend. So I get it. We love you, North Bend, but it ain't Seattle. Unless what you say is, yeah, yeah, I live in the greater Seattle area. I'm cool with that. The greater Seattle area. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. The greater here is a geographical scale reach term that Jesus is using. That, that not only will you do my, the works that you see me doing, but you will take the message of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, to the ends of the earth, to the greater Jerusalem area. That's what he's saying. So was he telling the truth? Again, we always have to look at the things Jesus said, and then it's okay to test, was he a liar, a lunatic, or Lord? How many of you are from Jerusalem? Raise your hand. 
Jerusalem, no Jerusalem. How many of you are from the greater Jerusalem area? <laughs> that should be all of us. We're all greater Jerusalem area. All these thousands of miles away, there was 12 that he said this to. 12. All these miles away in Jerusalem, 12 of them, he said it to them. They were probably thinking wrongly at the time. Now look around. Not only has it multiplied numerically just in this one church in this one place, but we are on the other side of the world 2,000 years later talking about Jesus. Was he telling the truth? Would they do greater works? Would something greater than they could have ever imagined happened by them loving the Lord and doing what he commanded? Look at this. This, if, if you're not baffled by this, you're not thinking about it. I am baffled that we are here. There's only a few explanations for it. And the best explanations of the best sociologists can't explain this phenomenon. So you could say, well, it's one on one, it just happened, it just is. Everything was just in the right place at the right time, just like how the world exists and life on this planet exists. You know, gravity just had to be just what it is so that we don't spin off into space or collapse on each other. It's just like that, and it just happened to Christianity, and so that's just the way it is. Or the dude who said it would happen might be Lord of the universe. We have to decide. Time, chance, accident, this, or Jesus knew what he was talking about. I think he knew what he was talking about. Greater work will you do. And remember how that greater work happened, pointing back to last week. Letting God access you in prayer, not just bringing what you want as a request to God, though that's okay, but primarily bringing yourself to God and saying, God, use me for your work, for whatever part of the greater works you want me to participate in. I'm going to truly and willfully surrender my agenda, my skills, myself as a living sacrifice to the living God, to the reigning Jesus for whatever he has prepared before the foundation of the world to accomplish through me, in me, despite me. I'm here for it, God. Take it. That's what we said last week. If we do that, we get to participate in the greater work of greater things yet to come. Starting to get excited again. A lot of you said, Dave, you were excited last week. Of course I'm excited. Jesus tells us we get to do his work and greater work. I'm very excited about that. What you're telling me, I have purpose and meaning, I exist not just as an accident? Yes, I'm telling you that the world is telling you you have no value, you're not important, you don't have purpose, and I'm here to tell you what Jesus said is that you have more importance than you ever could imagine that you could possibly have. That's what an activist does. <laughs> I'm an activist. I want you to know that. And the world's trying to tell you the opposite, that you just don't really matter, and that nobody really matters, but we should all really matter in the same way. No, Jesus says the opposite. Whew, come on, people. Are we... Are this, come on. This is the best commercial you'll see all day right here. <laughs> it's the best commercial. Are you in it? Don't go get popcorn and snacks. Stay right in this commercial. This is the best part of the game. Okay, so here we go. In this context, then, of the greater works that we're about to do, Jesus says to us, what does he say to us? Let's look at it. Verse 15. If you love me, 
then you'll keep my commands, including the command to do my greater work in the world. Now, do you think Jesus meant what he said? That the way you love him is to keep his commands. How would we know that he really meant that and it's not a throwaway line? Well, let's see if he doesn't say it four times in a row. Look at, uh, look at verse 21. Look at verse 21. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. There's two. But he's not done yet. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, he says, Jesus answered. Remember, Judas, not, not Iscariot, his question that had nothing to do with this, and Jesus just used this like a great inter- interviewee does to stump speech. <laughs> you know, he said, Jesus answered, great question, Judas. If, every, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. There's number three. And just in case you aren't picking up what Jesus is putting down, he uses the negation of what he's already said three times to say it again in another way. He says this, the one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. You think he's trying to get something across? He's saying, guys, you cannot love me the way I have loved you. This has already happened. I initiate, I take the first step, I always have. I came while you were still sinners and I gave my life for you. That is complete. I have taken upon myself your sin, your rebellion, your mistakes, your shortcomings, Whether you know them or not, I've taken them on myself. That is how I love you. That is how the Father has loved you because he sent you. That is what the Spirit will remind you of when you feel unloved. I want you to look at the cross and know how much I love you. But you don't love me like that. This is not I love you the same way you love me. The way you love me, Jesus says, is you will keep my commands. I need you to know that. Now, what commands is he talking about? Is Jesus really saying that if we don't keep his commands perfectly, we cross every T, we dot every I, we we live a perfect life, unless we do that, then he'll know we don't really love him. Is that what he's telling us? No, 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 no. This tells you he knows that's not going to ever happen. He wouldn't have to go to the cross if it was possible for humanity to love and keep his commands without the cross. So he can't be talking about perfectly keeping every thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. He must be talking about something else. That's the first big aha. When Jesus says this, and, and maybe we've just so forgotten it, Maybe if you come out of a different religious context, this feels like an aha to you. But I want everyone to have an aha. The aha here is this. Love, not fear. Love, not fear, is the impetus for following Jesus' commands. Like we so miss it that that is not the way most other religious systems work. It's typically... Fear is the impetus for following God's commands. Jesus says, love is the impetus for following my commands. Another way you could say it is this. Obedience is symptomatic of love, not fear. Obedience is symptomatic of love, 
not symptomatic of fear. Like the kind of obedience Jesus wants is symptomatic of love. So obedience just happens for those who love Jesus. And why do we love Jesus? Because we've heard and experienced what he's done for us. Not what he might do for us, not if we're good enough that he will do for us, but what he's already done. It's finished. And when we meditate and weep upon the cross of Christ and we see what he's done for us, the love and affection for a God like that who would give up everything for us while we were still sinners, that affection, that love, plays itself out symptomatically through obedience. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's how we'll know for those of us who look at the cross and love is the byproduct because the byproduct of our life will be obedience. We will be wanting so badly to know what it means to do the commands of Jesus. It won't be something that's particularly hard. Now it's really hard. Hold on. Get, let's say it's very hard. But it won't be hard to want to do that if we understand what he's done for us. So obedience is symptomatic of love. Okay, so part of why this might be hard for us comes down to a little, at least for me this week, came down to a little um, semantic nuance, okay? So in the, so basically the English words we have here are translated from the oldest and most original Greek manuscripts that we have dating all the way back, you know, pretty much 2,000 years ago, just like About 100 years after Jesus died, we have that old of manuscripts and all the greatest scholars in the world have put in time and effort to put back, to get back to the original Greek. And then from the Greek, you translate to the English. So the problem is, and we'll see another problem with the other word counselor that comes up again and again. But with this word commands, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, they decided to translate the word commands. If you have like the ESV, English Standard Version, they translate the Greek word as commandments. So I asked Ryan this week, I said, hey, Ryan, when you hear commandments versus commands, does anything feel different in your mind? He said, no. Okay, so I said, I said okay, I'm going to ask the church that. I said, does anything feel different to you when you hear those two words? God's commandments and God's commands. Anything feel different? Let me get a drink of water. You think about that. Commandments, commands. Okay. In my mind, imperfect as it is, when I hear commandments, I always think of thou shalt not. Like the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. So when I hear commandments, I tend to always think of the things I shouldn't do, which are called the sins of commission. Have you heard of this? Commission. So you shouldn't do that. So if you, if you do that, Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you commit adultery, you have sinned. You've fallen short of God's commandment. At least in my mind, that's where my mind goes. So when I read it in the ESV, I always read the passage in multiple translations to see how different English translators, it helps you get a sense of what the original writer was thinking and feeling in the Greek. I'm like, okay, so if I love God by not doing things, that's one thing. If I read it in the CSB where it says commands, thou shall, 
I think more proactive, actions. That's at least how my mind is. Now, the actual Greek word, if you look it up in the lexicon, this is the first definition of the Greek word. It means an order authorizing a specific action. So I think that's probably why the translators of the CSB chose to use commands versus commandments. Maybe in their mind, they thought commandments and they went to the thou shalt nots. I think what Jesus is talking about here is more thou shall go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. A very specific action that is ordered by, an, uh, authorized by a king, you might say. Now, if we don't do those things, that's what we would call a sin of omission. Oh, I should have done it, but I omitted doing it. Okay, now, I'm not, I, I don't think Jesus is saying, therefore, disregard the Old Testament, disregard the Ten Commandments, and those are null and void, and we should just go do whatever. No. I think he has those in mind, but I think because of what we've already seen by you will do greater works than me, I think he's primarily thinking of commands as when you go and do the things that I have sent you to do, Jesus says, that's how you love me. And you won't be able to do those things if you're busy fornicating with your neighbor's wife. Seriously. If you're greedy and you're only thinking about your bank account and your bottom line and your vacation homes and your third, fourth, fifth cars, you probably aren't going to go do the things I'm commanding you to do. So the thou shalt nots are important in so much as they keep you from doing the thou shalts. So I do think there's hierarchy there. And maybe that's new for you. Maybe you've only ever thought because fear is what drives you to obey God rather than love. That's where you need to do the work. Because if love's driving you, you're going to want to go do the things that God is sending you to do, and you'll realize that your sin, your bad habits, your, they're the things that weigh you down from going as far and as fast and as great as God has you to go. That's at least how it works in my life. When I see my sin as that which keeps me from the greater works God's given me to do, then I can slay that sin in the Spirit. With much work and effort and yet I always fall back into it at times, but that is what gives me the juice to actually push back against those things that have a tendency to rule and reign my life. So I think Jesus wants us to focus, at least see how it's the thou shall that is driving, that is driven or driving the love that we have for the him. Not just the well, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and I don't do that. I mean, think about all the hard words he had for the Pharisees, who were the best at keeping the thou shalt nots. That dude was hard on the Pharisees, and they were probably doing a pretty good job. He must have something else in mind. I think he does. So here's an application for you. Do you, there's this thing in Seattle I've noticed, and this is not just Christians in Seattle, this is everyone in Seattle. Seattle seems to follow the mantra of do no harm. This is what love is. Do no harm. Have you noticed that? I think, I think a lot of what drives the morality of this city and the ethics of the city, which, honestly, there's a lot of good that happens in this city, but I think what drives it is the mantra, 
I will do no harm. And I think that's very different than what Jesus has commanded his disciples to do, and he's commanded us to do. He doesn't just want us to do no harms, which is avoid the thou shalt not. He wants us to go do something, build something, help someone, sacrifice your life, sacrifice your money, sacrifice your time to actually bring about something in the world that wasn't there. Don't just avoid doing harm. Those are very different mantras. And when you see it, you might actually start to realize how Jesus is greater than the world, that the peace he wants for us is greater than the peace the world wants, right? Like, like I think that's at the heart of it. I mean, even international politics, you could think. One's a do-no-harm kind of politics, and one is a bring peace, lasting peace to the world. And I think seeing it that way might help you realize the difference of what, Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus' commands. Okay. So if loving God by doing his commands is not primarily about what we do not do, but primarily about what we do do, if my boys were in here, they'd just say, Dad, you said do-do. Okay. So what you do do, I wrote it right here. Okay, to do his works and even greater works and to love like he loved, then what does that look like? Well, the very first thing we know for sure about the commands of God is when Jesus was asked by the religious lawyers of his day, what's the greatest law, what's the greatest Old Testament law, the greatest command, Jesus answered by saying this. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So that gives us some insight. Again, those are very positive, do-thing kind of commands. And Jesus says those are, the, those are number one and number two. So we can look at that. This is made even more clear when we look at what John, the writer of the gospel, also writes in his letters to the churches. So we have the gospel of John, but then we also have three letters. First John, second John, third John. So in first John, we're going to throw this on the screen for you so you don't have to turn there. John writes this. Hear, hear the similar language. So remembering the speech of Jesus, he's going to now, in the letters, bring to life some of that speech. He says this. My little children, John writes. This is John 2, 1 to 6. I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. So not sinning is important. Avoiding sin is important. But, John says... If anyone does sin, and you will, he's saying, we have an advocate, underline advocate, we'll come back to that, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one who died for our sin. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, John says. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands, the one who says, I have come to know him and yet does not keep his commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. What truth? Remember what John said here, or Jesus said here, the spirit of truth will be in you. So if someone says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commands, he's a liar. The spirit of truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. 
This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. So John gives us a little more extrapolation on the things Jesus said by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the one who says he remains in him should walk just as Jesus walked. Again, there's this Jesus has set the way for us, and when we walk as he walked, he receives that as our love. Yes, without sin is the, the, best, the best thing to aim at. But when you sin, because you're a fallen human being, when you don't quite walk as he walked, don't worry, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ himself will advocate for you. He is your sacrifice. He covers your sin, past, present, and future, so that you can keep focusing more on what you can do and should do and will do and not just on all the ways you've fallen short. So don't, so one of the reasons I want to bring this up, so to love God is to walk like Jesus walked. And I think sometimes in our fear of doing harm or making a misstep, we say, you know what, the best way I can love God is I'm just going to go ahead and sit right here. And if I don't walk, I won't walk in the, in the wrong way. I don't, I, if I don't help, I won't help in the wrong way. If I don't share the gospel, I won't share the gospel in the wrong way. God didn't say, sit so you don't hurt anybody. He said, get up. Rise up. And walk. Just like I walked. That's what it means to love God. Okay. So if loving God means keeping his commands, walking as he walks, working as he works, living as he lives, loving as he loves, how many of you are feeling a little overwhelmed (laughs) at the task in front of you? I I know I am. I am overwhelmed by this calling. I'm overwhelmed by this is the way that I love God back. How could I possibly live like he lived, love like he loved, walk like he walked? How could I possibly do that? Do you know me, Dave? Well, I know myself. And I know I can't do it on my own. Like, it was hard enough picking out which socks to wear this morning. Can I get an amen? I mean, is it hot? Is it cold? Is it wet? I mean, I don't even know what socks to put on. I mean, you made it here. Think of all the people back home who couldn't figure out which socks to put on. I feel you. I almost didn't show up. I had two socks that didn't match. I had some short socks, but then I kind of got these tight jeans. What if they get rolled up? They see my ankle. Not a lot of sun on those babies. I could ruin the church. No, so which socks? I got my husky socks on. These are nice socks. I think I made the right choice. But, like, it's hard enough. And to be like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to do the works he did, how in the world? There's no way. Some of you know what's coming. (laughs) Yahweh. Totally. Like, that's the answer. He's been saying it for the last few weeks. Look at verse 16. There's no way I could walk like he walks. There's no way I could keep his commands. There's no way I could do his work. 
And look at what Jesus says. If you love me, you'll keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. Who's this counselor? He is the spirit of truth. The world can't receive him. They don't see him. They don't know him. But you do know him. Why do you know him? Because it's me in spirit. I'm going to send him to you. He's going to do all these different things to help you along the way. Now the word there, the Greek word for counselor, is historically difficult to translate. Why? John is the only New Testament writer that uses this word. It's actually the word paraclete. Paraclete. Para meaning come alongside. I don't know what cleat means. Come alongside. (laughs) But that's why it's like a counselor. Okay? So there's sort of two vital observations in this line that unpack the whole thing of how Jesus says we will be able to keep his commands and be like him and walk like him and love like him. It's because he's sending to us a helper. So Pericles has been translated by different uh, translations primarily in four ways. The comforter, it's King James Version. Advocate, you see that in the NIV, but you'll also see it in the first John passage. When I said you have an advocate, that same word, Pericles. Counselor, like we see here in the CSB, or helper is what you see in the ESV. Those four are kind of the most common, but they don't all capture the essence of Pericles. It's like all of those things wrapped into one because the Pericles is God himself. So when I was studying what does Pericles mean, like quite simply, the general term, when you see it used in other Greek literature, but it's not even used that often, typically has sort of this courtroom or legal context. And so, you know, you just picture yourself in a a courtroom and thinking about the people that are with the defendant, think about it like that, as the supporter or the sponsor. That's kind of the connotation. The one, the para-legal, you could say, or the person sitting with the accused, okay? And I think this aligns really well with the idea that we get again and again in Scripture, from Jesus about the Holy Spirit, which is that, that not only is God um, uh, our God and Jesus, not only is it creator and redeemer through the cross, or you might say savior, not only is he Lord, the one who guides us and directs us and gives us commands, but he's also friend. So you can think about it as a stool, Which part of your conception of God is off? That he is your savior, that he is your Lord and master, or that he is your friend? And I think all this paraclete language reminds us that God is our friend in a time of need. So when you picture the courtroom, not only is God our judge, that's true, scripture makes that very clear, that he sees all things, he knows all things, and one day he will judge all things, But he is also our friend in the courtroom, our supporter, our sponsor. So just think about, at the end of time, Scripture talks about standing before the Bema Seat of Christ and the tribunal of God and and, and having the books of our life open and God judging all things as our final judge. But not only is he that, but he steps down, comes and sits next to us, 
beside us and with us as our supporter and our sponsor. This is Christ with us. Not only does he have to be our judge, but he also is our advocate. He is the person who cheers us on like a good friend. He is the one that comforts us. He's the one that counsels us. And I think this is what John is getting at when he talks about, I will send to you another paraclete. And that brings me, perfect segue, to the other observation. And this is, again, an observation that Pastor Ryan missed. So I want to make that very clear. I said, Ryan, do you see anything interesting about this text? He said, no. <laughs> I said, what about that word, another? I said, what do you think that means? He said, I don't know. I said, what? that means, right, that there must have been one before, if there's another. He said, oh. I said, yeah. <laughs> That's an amazing observation that you guys just made. And now you have that over Ryan. So you'll say, I can't believe you didn't see that, Ryan. I saw that right there. Another paraclete. So the Greek word, there is a Greek word for other. It's a different word than another. That's important. John could have said, and there's, there is other paraclete that I'll send to you, but he says another. So in the Greek, another means one of the same kind versus the Greek word for other means one of a different kind. So what John's saying is, Jesus, is say, Jesus said, I'm going to send you another, one of the same kind of advocate, counselor, helper that I have been to you. Wow. And we see it right there in 1 John 2.1. So throw that back up on the screen. 1 John 2.1 says, John writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have a paraclete with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So John is very clear that Jesus is claiming that the spirit that he will send is not a different kind of paraclete, but the same, one of the same kind as we've already had in Jesus. It's amazing to see this come to life when you read the word of God. Jesus says, I know it's going to be hard when I leave, but don't worry. I'm sending you another, just like me, because it is me. I'm sending you my spirit. The spirit of God, Scripture calls it elsewhere, is poured out not only by God the Father, but also by God the Son. And so what you may not have seen at first, I want you to see now, right here in this text is this amazing Trinitarian theology and what that means is just an understanding of God that sees the fullness of one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so the Spirit of God is sent by the Father and the Son. That's how it can be another paraclete like Jesus, of the same kind. Jesus sends his Spirit so that his Spirit can be with each of us wherever we're at, whether we're in Jerusalem or the greater Jerusalem of Seattle, Washington, or even the greater Jerusalem of the greater Seattle area of North Bend. Even the Spirit makes it there. You're good. You're good. North Bend. We love you, North Bend. This makes the passage so amazing. Do you see it? Do you feel it? Do you see what Jesus is saying? 
He is saying, guys, if you misunderstood who God primarily is, what he is at his essence, how he relates to you in the fullness, God himself, the full God, the triune God, is your advocate. He is your sponsor, your supporter, and he he provides every necessary chair in, in the life that you have to live to help you along the way, to counsel you along the way, to give you what you need. The Father advocates for you by sending you the helpers you need in the person of Jesus and in the Spirit. The Son advocates by coming and walking with us and showing us the way and giving us the commands to follow and then giving His life for us to pay the ransom for our sin. He is our friend in that way. And then, and then the Spirit is our advocate by being near to us, comforting us, revealing truth to us, reminding us of Jesus' words, convicting us of, of sin when we need it so that we can keep the commands of God to the best of our ability with His help. God is our advocate. What an amazing God. This is the God we're here to worship this morning. This is the God who we are surrendering our lives to. This is the God that we're saying, access me, God, use me however you might, because you are my advocate. What a God. One God, one advocate, expressing his fidelity to us through friendship, through advocating, through comforting, through counseling, in a multitude of ways, through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all wrapping around us and saying, I want to be with you and in you even to the end of the age and far beyond. I'll be with you forever. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. This is what he tells you. So how in the world can we keep this high calling to love God by keeping his commands only with the help of another paraclete, the Spirit of God, that God gives freely to any and all of his children who with open hands say, come Holy Spirit, I want you to fill my life like you filled the disciples' lives. I want you to fill my life like you filled countless Christian followers of Jesus through the ages. I'm giving you my life, God. I need your help. I want to love you. Help me love you well. Send me another paraclete. You can pray that prayer this morning. In worship, when we're singing, you can open your hands like this and just ask God to fill you with the Spirit. Surrender your life. Ask for forgiveness. Receive the Spirit. Your advocate wants to give you another helper. You need another helper. You cannot do it on your own. God is waiting. One final observation. Notice chapter, or verse 15 and verse 31. They are bookends. Okay? So verse 15 says what? If you love me, you will keep my commands. Turn to verse 31. Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do as the Father commanded me. See the bookends? To love is to keep. Jesus is not asking you to do something that he didn't do himself. He never does that. He always models for us and shows us there is a way. It is possible to keep the commands of God. He says, I listen to the Father. 
I surrender myself to the Father. I do exactly as the Father commanded me, and that's how the world knows I love the Father. And he says, just like I've done that with the Father, you do that with me. If you love me, listen to my commands. Hear my words and, and try to do them. That's how you love me, just like I love the Father. And look at verse 23. This is where I just don't want to leave you with this, I don't even know where to start. Jesus says, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. If the one doesn't love me, he will not keep my words. So like, well, how do I know what the words of, of Jesus are? This is the word of Jesus. Jesus, past, present, and future, has spoken to us through this. This is the authority with which we stand. This is the place we go back to over and over again. This is why we, every week, come to this and teach this, hopefully thoroughly and deeply, because this is Jesus' word. Not only the speeches that he gives, but everything in here is his word. This is our foundation. This is the place we go to to begin a conversation when we want to know, Jesus, what are you commanding me to do? We have to start here. This is it, the word of God, the word of Jesus. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my word, which means you must know my word, which is why we study God's word. And we keep considering it. We keep studying it. We never grow weary of coming to new knowledge, just like Pastor Ryan did today, of the Word. Like, this guy studies this for a living, and he's still coming to these aha moments all the time. I have this every week. I come to this aha moments. There's so much to, to love the words of Jesus and then to follow them. That's the way you love your Savior, your Lord, and your friend. Let's pray.